Many of you know modern technology, you know, medical technology has made uh, childbirth much safer. But it didn't always used to be that way, right? Oftentimes, childbirth was, and, and still to a certain degree, is a very dangerous thing. And it, it happened many, many years ago that there was a family on a journey, and when the love of this man's life began to, to give birth, she died. She died, and he was terribly sad. And he mourned, and he wept. And there, along the road, he buried his wife. There was another woman later on who had a husband, whom we can presume that she cared very much about. And her husband died. And in those days when the husband died and left a woman widowed, she was very vulnerable. And we find that it left her and her mother-in-law destitute, fighting for their lives. What would they do? What would become of them? But fortunately, she met a man. And she pursued this man. And this man, in turn, married her and loved her deeply and took care of her and her mother-in-law. In the one story, we have a story of, of deep tragedy. In the other story, we have a story of tragedy, but also a story of, of redemption. Then there was a story, there's another story of a man, uh, he was a priest, and he traveled all around looking for work, looking for, a, I suppose, a parish where he could serve. He traveled far and wide looking for work, and he finally found a job working, actually, for a wealthy family. The man allowed that wealthy family to distort his calling, and he began to, to do things no longer for the sake of God, but for the sake of status and wealth. He compromised the message that he had been charged to deliver and instead became deeply corrupt. He gladly led everyone around him into sin for his own gain. But in the end, he actually ended up destitute and with nothing. It was a story of great sin and a story of failure. Two more stories. There was a woman who was married to a man who didn't treat her right at all. In fact, he was pretty horrible to her, so she left. She left and she went back home. And as she was at home, her, her husband came calling for her. He begged her to come back. He said things would be different. He'll take care of her now. And the father said, okay, and convinced his daughter to go back with her husband. But as they were traveling back to their home, a horrible situation came about. A situation where it was placed, it was either him or her. It was either the husband or the wife. And instead of being a good husband who sacrificed for his wife, he pushed her out the door and allowed her to be taken advantage of. In fact, so badly, 
that she died. It's a story of injustice, a story of pure evil. Finally, there was a son, and he was the youngest son. He was born to an insignificant family in an insignificant place. Not the type of person that you would necessarily look at and say, this is the man who is going to be successful. And yet there was a man who came to town, and he was to choose the next king. And, and this youngest brother had lots of other brothers. But for some reason, this man chose the youngest of all the brothers and said he would be the king. To everyone's surprise, he was chosen. And this man would go on to be the greatest king this country had ever had, the greatest successes that they had ever had. He would be the benchmark that all other kings would be compared to. It was a story of great blessing, a story of undeserved favor. Now, if you're wondering, what is, what is the, what's the thread here? Like, these are like some random stories. Here's the thread. Every single one of these stories either occur in Bethlehem or they occur to someone who was from Bethlehem. We find each one of these stories written in the Old Testament. The first story was the story of Rachel and her husband, Jacob. They were traveling, and Rachel died along the road, and Jacob was so sad. If you read this in Genesis chapter 35, and he buried her at Bethlehem. It's the first time Bethlehem shows up in the Bible. Ruth and Naomi are our second story, and Boaz is the man who marries Ruth. We read about that story. It's not just a, a chick flick. It's a wonderful story we read about in the book of Ruth, right? It has that sort of hallmark ending that we all want, you know, like we all long for, and thankfully it's there, you know, like, but, but it's a beautiful story, isn't it? And then things take a much darker turn when we come to the book of Judges. And the two, I would, I would argue, the two most horrible things that we read about in all of the Bible or at least the Old Testament anyway, happen at the end of the book of Judges, and they both involve Bethlehem. In the first story about, um, from Judges, we read about that priest who, who travels, and he uses idols, and you know, he, he's happy to, to use idols and to you know, manipulate people in order to gain success, until, uh, you know, and this guy Micah, who he ends up working for, uh, it's, it's just a, anyway, it's a terrible story. Um, but things take an even darker turn at the very end of the book of Judges. And if you remember back to our series in Gideon, I said the book of Judges was written to make you upset. <laughs> That's the whole point. You're you're, you know, your stomach is supposed to curdle as you read the book of, of Judges. If it does, if the book has done its job, right? You know, because this is what people were like apart from God. And Bethlehem plays its story. This woman that was so ill-treated was from Bethlehem. And you read about that in Judges chapter 19. And then 20 and 21 are kind of the culmination of what ends up happening after she dies. Um, and things get really nasty and really ugly anyway. Um, we'll, just, we'll just leave that alone. You can read that if you want. And then finally, maybe you were starting to guess by the end uh, that our story, our final story, was David. King David. Which we read about uh, 
in 1 Samuel 16, when Samuel comes and anoints him to be the new king. And so we have these people, all of these people from Bethlehem, or that have things happen to them in Bethlehem. Yet, Bethlehem was an incredibly insignificant place. It was an insignificant town and an insignificant part of <laughs> the Israelite territory. It wasn't anything special. It wasn't included in censuses. You know, it wasn't like we only read about it in passing. You know, like this person was from Bethlehem or that person. You know, like it's, it's a fairly insignificant place, yet so many significant things happen there. So many different things. Stories of tragedy, of redemption, stories of sin and idolatry, stories of injustice and evil, stories of great blessing and undeserved favor all happen to Bethlehem. It was an insignificant place, but it had, it, it had experienced much in its history. God used, in the end, this insignificant place to accomplish a great deal in his purposes. And here's where I'm going with this. I think you and I have faced a lot of things in our life. Most of us have faced some form of sadness and tragedy. All of us have faced some sort of injustice. Probably not on the level of this woman, but like some level of injustice. We've also experienced great sin and great failure in our lives. We've often maybe experienced even then from that redemption. We've experienced those things. We've, we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And, and maybe there we've also experienced great blessing and undeserved favor. Just like Bethlehem, you and I have experienced the gamut of things that life brings. And yet, what I think we find is that God is still at work. God is at work in you. God is at work in me, just like God used Bethlehem to accomplish his goals and his purposes, God uses you and me as well. Our lives, like Bethlehem, are checkered, and I would say in the grand scheme of world history, if we're really honest, pretty insignificant. You know, most of us will die and be forgotten. I mean, you think about the history books, you know, there are very few people written in there, <laughs> you know, and a lot of them, you wouldn't want to be them. There is the reason they're there, and it's not a good one, right? You know, there are very few people that make history out of the billions of people that live on this earth. And so the reality is that from a worldly perspective, most of us will be seen as insignificant. And yet, I think the reality is that when it, when, when it comes to the person who truly matters, the God of this universe, you and I are seen as significant. And so I don't know what you're going through. I don't know, I mean, I know what some of you guys are going through, but I don't know everything. But I know that we all sometimes struggle with that feeling of like, how could God love me? Or could God use me? And I think looking at just even a town of Bethlehem and seeing how God even though it, it had a, a, a wide range of history, how God still used and loved the people 
in that place. And so the question then is, like Bethlehem, can God use me? Even with all my history, even with all the things I've done or I've had done to me, can God still use me? And I think the answer to that question, obviously, is yes. <laughs> I wouldn't be here if I thought the answer was no, right? You know, like, that wouldn't be, you know, you know no, okay, see you guys. You know, like, this is, you know, like, this is good. Sad sermon. You know, like, no, yes, God can use you. God wants to use you. God wants to redeem even your past failures. God wants to take you as you are and mold you into who he wants you to be, who he created you to be. So yes, God wants to use you. And I think there are two main ways in the Bible that we see God using people. One is by force, and one is with, through partnership. Let me just say, you don't want the by force. All right, when we read about that in the Bible, it's usually not a good thing, right? I mean, the first one that comes to mind is Pharaoh. I mean, is that really what you want? No, probably not, right? You know, so we don't want it like God to have to use us by force. You know, sometimes I think God does, you know, just kind of wind up and, you know, give you a punt. Like, that happens, right? You know, like, maybe we've experienced that where there's those times where God, you know, maybe by force a little bit, you know, like, it's just, but God wants to partner with us. He wants to partner with you. He wants to partner with me. So how does that happen. I think it starts by recognizing that you and I are not the king or the queen. In other words, you and I are not in control. We are not the ones in charge. We are not the captain of our, you know, of our ship, the commander of our own destiny, all of this sort of thing, all of the rhetoric that we hear all the time. It just isn't the reality. You see, there's all of these nice platitudes that go around about you, know, about you controlling your own destiny and you can do whatever you set your mind to. We know that's not true. If that were true, I would be like, I, I would be an underwater archaeologist astronaut. Like, it would just like, you know what I mean? Like, you can ask Alyssa, that's true. And I would play, I would play in a rock band on the side. Like, you know, like this, like, right? But none of that is going to happen. Like, that's not within my wheelhouse. Like, you know, like, Maybe underwater archaeology. Not an astronaut, though. Like, definitely not an astronaut, okay? Like, that's, you know, um, right? We know this isn't true. And I know I'm being, you know, again, being, like, you know, extreme and ridiculous here. But, like, that reality that we, that, you know, our culture feeds to us constantly. You are, are the one to make your own destiny, your own fate. And sure, there's an element to where we need to do, we actually need to get off our bum and do something. I mean, yeah, but we, we aren't the commander of our own destiny. So many of us have experienced stuff that was completely out of our control. It had nothing to do with us. And it shapes who we become. It shapes who we are. We know this isn't true. And it, it, so we need to recognize this reality that we are not the king, that God is. And this is hard. This is hard for all of us to give up control, right? To give up what the perceived power that we feel that we have and to give it to someone else 
and yet we all do it anyway. You think about uh, our culture, like how much power over our lives do we give to advertisers? An enormous amount of trust, an enormous amount of power is given to our media, is given to advertising, is given to people you know, in, in every sphere of life. How much power and control do we give over other people on the road when we decide to take the wheel? You know, like, I mean, there's all sorts of things. We are constantly giving people power and living with this illusion then that we are really the ones in control and king of our own life. When things go well, we're tempted to trust in our own self-sufficiency rather than God. And when tragedy strikes, we tend to blame God while still continuing on our DIY path. We just want somebody to take out our anger on, and so we choose God. And this is the story, I think, often of God's people, too, as we read in the Old Testament. They wanted to go their own way, and when things went bad, who'd they get mad at? It wasn't themselves. (laughs) It was God. And, you know, you may have thought we were done with the minor prophets, you know, after we went through uh, Habakkuk and... uh, you know, breathe the sigh of relief until next November, but we're going to be back in the Minor Prophets here for a moment. Um, So Micah chapter 4, Micah chapter 5. Many moons ago, we went through the book of of Micah, um, but we're going to be be back there. We're going to look at Micah chapter 4, and I want to look at Micah chapter 4, verse 9. Now, I'm going to read from the New American Standard, um, not because it's American and I'm American, but because I think it actually uh, translates things a little bit in a way, a little bit clearer than what the New Living Translation does in, in this spot. Um, both are perfectly viable, good translations. I just think the New American Standard actually brings out a word that I want to emphasize better, <laughs> a Hebrew word better, than what the, new, what the New Living does. In Micah chapter 4, verse 9, Micah is talking to the people uh, of God who are, are facing the Assyrians coming knocking on, on the door. And Micah says to them, the words of God. Now, why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you? Or has your counselor perished? The agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth. Micah here is asking the people a really important question. Now, is Micah talking about a human king and a human counselor? Or is he speaking like Isaiah chapter 9 Verse 6, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Why are you not looking to God? You're afraid. You're terrified. You've forgotten who is king. You've forgotten who your counselor is. Micah asks, the people, why the people do not call on God, their king. You're afraid, but you're not talking to the right person. You're afraid for good reason, because you're trying to do this on your own. God is able to hear their pain and their agony He is the wonderful counselor, the king. 
And so though the Israelites in Micah's time were facing tragedy and they were facing difficulty, God was not done with them. He was calling them to return to Him, to trust in Him, to not trust in themselves, but to trust in Him. Even though they couldn't see what he was doing, they, he was be, they were being called to trust that God was at work. And if we keep reading past 9, 6, or sorry, um, sorry, 4, 9, there we go, and into chapter, into verse 10. Writhe and groan like a woman in labor, you people of Jerusalem. For now you must leave the city to live in the open country. You will soon be sent into exile to distant Babylon, but the Lord will rescue you there. He will redeem you from the grip of your enemies. And so what we find is is God, through the prophet Micah, saying to the people, trust me. You think things are bad now? It's going to get worse. (laughs) But you need to trust me. You need to trust me that I know what I'm doing, that I have a plan, and that I will redeem you from the grips of your enemy. When you are in exile, when, I, when it feels like I am silent, when it feels like I am far, I am not. I am with you. And so though they were facing tragedy and difficulty, God was not done with them, and he called them to to trust. And I think, like the Israelites here, sometimes it's difficult to trust. Am I right? Like, I mean, I don't think I'm just speaking for myself there. <laughs> it's difficult to trust. Maybe you guys, like me, have had times where it feels like God is not present. Like, is that something you guys maybe have experienced too? You know, that when those times when it feels like, God, where are you? Like, God is not present, like he's left us. What some ancient writers describe as the dark night of the soul, where it feels like you're praying to the ceiling and that's it. And it's in those times then where God feels distant that we're called to trust. Or sometimes, you know, I think there are some times where just God feels absent. And it's not anything you've done wrong or I've done wrong, or anybody's done wrong. There's just those times where God feels absent, and we're called to trust in his faithfulness, that he has not left us. But I think often, and I know in my life, probably it's the 99% of the time, what I've experienced is God's perceived absence, and it's self-inflicted. And I think this is what the Israelites are going through. They're afraid. They're wondering where God is. And it's not because God is absent. It's because they've been absent. And I think so often, when we make something else king, whether that's ourself or or our ambitions or something else, and then things go terribly wrong for us and we cry out to God and we're like, where are you? Where have you been? God has not been the one absent. You and I have been the ones that were absent. And so we leave and we walk away. We we become consumed by ourselves. We become consumed by others. And then we wonder why God feels absent. 
We are to return in repentance and faith and trust in him. It's in these moments that we need to step back and see that our present difficulties, or sorry, we need to see our present difficulties in the light of God's future, in the light of God's future promises, and in the light of God's past faithfulness. And what this does is instead of despair, it allows us to hope. And you know what? Even more so than the people uh, in Micah's day, for you and I, we live on this side of Jesus. And we experience that in Christ, God is never really absent. That he is with us in our suffering. He is with us in our pain. And that it is okay, like Jesus, to cry out in honesty and in our pain. And to ask why. You know, we're going through Habakkuk. We talked about that, like, right? It's okay to do that, to process in prayer the things that we are feeling and experiencing. Instead of running from God, we run to Him, recognizing that He is the King. God may seem silent, but He hasn't left us. And it's one of those, like, uh, here's, here's you know, your C.S. Lewis uh, moment uh, in the sermon. I know Luke and I are fairly fond of, of uh, bringing C.S. Lewis into a sermon, but my favorite of the Chronicles of Narnia is not The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, it's probably, in, in my opinion, it's the, it's the uh, ooh, I was going to say the dark horse of the group because it's, it's the horse and his boy. Um, that's, like, that's my favorite of, of the Chronicles of Narnia books. And, and what we see in, in that story is there's a boy and a horse, um, unsurprisingly. Um, <laughs> and, and like, and he's trying, to, he's trying to escape him and the horse. It's a talking horse, of course. Um, and they're, they're escaping to Narnia, right? And this whole time, they seem to see this lion that comes out of nowhere and chases them in a direction they weren't planning to go. And eventually, even the lion catches them and wounds the boy. And in the end, what he finds out is all along this lion was Aslan who was guiding him and directing him, though he could not see it, though he felt often as if this lion was throwing them off course, this lion was taking them away from where they needed to be, and yet all of this time, the lion was leading and directing them, though they could not see it. And I think for you and I, we're encouraged to trust God in that way. And, and so Micah continues in, in his prophecy there. He, he chastises the people and, and, and encourages them to, and to trust God, to stop looking to other things as their king. And then in chapter 5, verse 2, uh, Micah says this, but you, O Bethlehem, we're back to Bethlehem again, so here we go, we've come full circle again, you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. The people of Israel will be abandoned to their enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. Then at last his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land. And he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Then his people will live there undisturbed, for he will be highly honored around the world, and he will be the source of peace. Micah encourages the, uh, his, the people to remember that in God's timing, God will move. 
And he tells them that he's going to use insignificant Bethlehem. That city that didn't even hardly make the map. Right? Barely there. Unimportant. That God would use this insignificant city and he would make them significant. They would be significant. But they would be significant not on their own power, but they would be significant by what God, because of what God was doing. A greater king than had been born previously, a greater king than David, would be born in Bethlehem. And this, he would not just lead Israel, but he would lead the entire world that he will be highly honored around the world. He will be the source of peace. From Bethlehem would come a king who would bring everlasting peace. And we've talked about this word peace. Luke, I think, even brought it up last week. This word shalom. And it's so much more than just the absence of war but rather a wholeness or a completeness of life. That this king that would come from Bethlehem, unlike David, would bring to to the entire world peace in four directions. There would be peace with God, restored relationship with him. And through that restored relationship, then there would be peace with myself. Maybe you struggle with that. Maybe, you know, maybe that's something you struggle with, is having peace with, with yourself, with who you are. I think in our day, it's a common thing to talk about, right? To love yourself and all of that. But I don't think self-love is fully the answer. It's having peace with God that helps me to see who I really am. Right? To find peace with myself. And that peace with God leads not only to peace with myself, but it leads to peace with others. I no longer need to see everything through the lens of competition. But I can see other people as made in the image of God and loved by Him. And lastly, it brings peace peace with creation. Humans are not always the best at being good to creation, are we? I mean, I don't think I need to go too far into that. Um, But the story that the Bible tells is that through Jesus, there is peace in every direction, restored creation. The thing is, though, we still live in the already but not yet. Jesus has come. He has come as that king who brings peace. But yet we know in our world there is still a lack of peace. And there is an element to where we experience the peace of God, but still not quite in its perfection. And the good news is that this prophecy in Micah has been fulfilled, but it will be even more fulfilled in perfection when Jesus returns and sets the world completely right. Revelation talks about every nation and tribe bringing their treasures to to Jerusalem, to Zion, to the king of kings, and laying them at their feet, that there will be peace on earth in every direction, complete and whole, lacking in nothing. And this king is to come from Bethlehem. You know, I just think about it. What's Bethlehem known for now? 
you know, those stories in, in Judges, they're there. But how many of you guys knew those stories really well? <laughs> they don't really. You know, even the story of David, as significant as that was, is not really what Bethlehem is that known for. Right? I mean, do millions of people pilgrimage to Jerusalem every year to see where, where David was born? No. They come to see where Jesus was born. They pilgrimage there to see where Jesus was born. Bethlehem receives its significance because of Jesus. Because the great king of kings was born in Bethlehem. And just like that, you and I are made significant by Jesus. We may be pretty insignificant. Look, I think you guys are all great people. You're significant to me. But again, I'm just saying, like I said earlier, if we think of from a historical standpoint, you know, a thousand years ago, or a thousand years from now, will people remember who I am? No. Not unless I do something really stupid. Um, <laughs> you know, but no. All right, let's just, let's just go with no. You know, like a thousand years from now, nobody's going to know who I, who I am, who I was. But I'm still significant. And so are you. Because God dwells in us. The Holy Spirit lives in us, and we matter to God. We receive our significance through Jesus. We are made significant by Jesus. In Christ, we find that the name given to God in Genesis, which is Elroy, the God who sees, I love that. I love that. That, that Hagar, in her tragedy and in her pain, calls out and calls God Elroy, you are the God who sees me, and that the God who sees me is also the God who became Emmanuel, God with us. In Christ, you are seen, and you are significant, and God is with you. Bethlehem may have been a mixed bag at best, but through her, God birthed the rescuer of the world. And because of this, because of this rescuer that came through Bethlehem, though we too are a mixed bag, we have redemption from our past and we have hope for our future. There is eternal life in the joy of God's presence. And that's what we remember. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. And we celebrate that as we get ready to take communion. You know, we read about Jesus calling himself the bread of life. You know how I love fun facts and information. Well, here's one for communion time. Bethlehem means house of bread. And I love it that the bread of life was born in the house of bread. <laughs> is, that, is that just a weird coincidence? I don't really think so. I don't know. And every time we come to the table, to the communion, we celebrate that we have tasted the goodness of the bread of life. That we come to him and we hunger and we thirst no more because we have received everything that we are looking for, everything that we, are, that we need, everything that we were created for, we receive as a gift in Christ. As we come to that table, we remember Jesus and we remember that because of him, 
we are significant. We are, as we lit the Advent candles, loved. We are loved more than we ever could possibly imagine, more than we ever dared to dream. And so communion is a time of celebration. We celebrate what Jesus has done for us. So we're going to pray, and then we're going to take communion. Uh, let's sing, sing uh, a few more songs. Uh, but I just encourage you to be, I encourage you to be encouraged <laughs> as, we, as we take communion this morning. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you that you've come.